words to each of these seven churches. And that's what we find in chapters 2 and 3. The exalted Christ speaks directly to seven local churches and instructs them and encourages them and exhorts them and warns them and gives them assurances and promises and commands. And as we hear Christ address these churches, we learn what does Christ want from His church? What does Jesus think a healthy church is? Revelation 2 and 3 show us. And at the end of each of these seven letters, we find the concluding words, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as Christ speaks to the first century church in Ephesus this morning, we should lean in in order to hear what the Spirit says to all churches through this. May God give us ears to hear. Look at verse 1 with me now, chapter 2. This is a word from Christ. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the first church Jesus addresses is the church in Ephesus, and perhaps no other church outside of the one in Jerusalem enjoyed the same strength of leadership and direct oversight from apostles that the church in Ephesus did. In Acts 19, we read about how Paul started the church in Ephesus, and he ministered there for almost three years, which is far more time than the Apostle Paul spent in most other places. And then Paul wrote the inspired letter of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus during one of his imprisonments. And later, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to care for the church there. And, and he wrote First and Second Timothy to give directions on how the church in Ephesus should be built up and protected. And tradition... According to the testimony of the early church after Scripture, tells us that later the Apostle John himself was part of leading the church at Ephesus. It's very possible that the Apostle John was a part of this church in Ephesus when he was arrested and exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. So this church had quite a heritage, an almost incomparable foundation to build upon of sound teaching and intensive shepherding care. But we'll see this morning that even all of that careful shepherding was not enough by itself to guarantee that the church would avoid slipping to a place where they needed strong rebuke. If the church in Ephesus could fall to such a dangerous spiritual place that we will read about, even in short order, the Apostle John is still alive. We surely need to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to this church, to our church. Specifically in verse 1, Christ addresses this message to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And so it will be throughout these seven letters. Each one begins with, to the angel of the church, right? Now, there's a lot of discussion about uh, what or whom is being referred to by the angels of the churches. Some see this as a reference to the earthly human leaders of the churches, the pastors or elders. And that isn't necessarily impossible because the Greek word translated angel can also just be translated as messenger in some contexts. Uh, but I think that the best way to understand this is actually referring to angels, uh, heavenly beings who are, as we read in Hebrews 2, ministering spirits sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Uh, this word is used, uh, translated angel here, rightly, 
It's used over 60 times in the book of Revelation outside of chapters 2 and 3. In all of those times, without exception, it seems pretty clear, referring to actual uh, heavenly beings, angels. I think it best to take it that way here as well. So, uh, Pastor Dan, I don't think, is the angel of the church (laughs) at Calvary, and neither am I. In chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, we learn that the church on earth truly is associated with the worshiping host of angels in heaven. Hebrews 12, verse 22 says, You, Christians on earth, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Perhaps writing to the angels of these churches suggests the role of angels in watching over and ministering to the churches, something like we read about in the book of Daniel, the nation of Israel. But at least, I think we can simply say that the angels addressed in these letters are heavenly representatives of these earthly churches. What purpose might that serve? When Christ gives words to and about a church on earth and addresses those words to an angel in heaven, it reminds the churches that their citizenship is in heaven. They belong, even now, while suffering on earth, while weak on earth, while opposed on earth. They really do belong to the kingdom of God. And Christ really is reigning as we speak, as we suffer at the right hand of God in the heavenly places where innumerable angels gather and worship. And the church belongs to that great worshiping, victorious host. And this is a hope that a suffering persecuted church needs to remember. The book of Revelation is written at a time of intense suffering and persecution. A suffering church needs to remember they belong even now to the assembly of the firstborn and to the heavenly Jerusalem with the living Christ and his angels. And they belong to heaven so much so that they can rightly be represented by the angels of heaven. Notice next how Jesus describes himself in this address to the Ephesian church. Verse 1, he holds the seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. This description of Jesus is part of the vision John saw that he described back in chapter 1. And it'll be this way in all of the seven letters. They all will begin with Jesus identifying himself making use of part of the vision John saw in chapter 1. And Jesus each time will choose to begin his letter highlighting an aspect of who he is that was revealed to John in chapter 1 that especially pertains to what that church needs to remember about Jesus. And so what's the reality about Jesus that the church in Ephesus most needs to hear? Jesus holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. Fortunately for us, at the end of chapter 1, the glorious Christ that John saw explains what the lampstands and stars represented. Verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, representing the churches themselves, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Christ is the one who stands in the midst of local churches, or as we have it in the beginning of this letter, Christ walks in the midst of local churches, and he holds in his hands the angels of those churches. They're heavenly representatives. 
So Christ walking among the lampstands shows He is present with, in a special way, all true churches. In Matthew 18, Jesus taught, where two or three are gathered in my name. And in context, I believe that refers to local churches. The context is a group of Christians exercising the verdict of church discipline. This is a local church where two or three are gathered in my name. He says, there I am among them. In Ephesians 1, we're told the church is Christ's fullness, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Christ is present in a special way with all true churches. He is present as their covenant Lord. He is present to bless. He is with them to help them and to know them and to know how they need to be encouraged and how they need to be rebuked. And Christ holding the stars shows He is not only present with the churches, but He is sovereignly protecting them and even directing their fate. To characterize the churches as lampstands signifies the role of churches on earth to be a light to those around them. And throughout the book of Revelation, this is a major theme. The people of God, including the Apostle John, suffer and are persecuted, especially as they fulfill the role of a witness, as they faithfully bear testimony to the Word of Christ, like a lamp on a lampstand. And as churches give testimony to Christ and to the gospel, and are His witnesses to the nations, and even as they suffer greatly as a result of that faithful witness, Jesus Christ is with them, and walks among them, and holds them, and He sovereignly secures their welfare. When churches are suffering, it may seem like Jesus, the King of the church, is not present with them or is not holding on to them very well. And Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus that is not the case. He is holding on to His kingdom very well. They're firmly in His right hand. Christ is present with us and is in control of everything that happens to us. And nothing will happen to any true church that is outside of what He orchestrates for their good and for His glory. What would happen to our church if the culture around us became more, even very much more, antagonistic to the gospel? I don't know. And neither do you. But I do know that Jesus will be with us and hold us in His hands. The very present and sovereign Christ begins his message to the church in Ephesus with a word of commendation. In verses 2 and 3, look at verse 2 now. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So all the letters to all the churches begin with Jesus' words, I know. The Christ who is present with His churches knows the works of His churches. Christ knows the works of this church in Ephesus, and He commends them for four things in verse 2. First, for their labor, their toil, and they are working hard for the kingdom. They are exerting themselves in devotion to various kinds of good works. This is a hard-working church, and Christ commends them. Christ also praises their patient endurance. The Ephesian Christians are enduring through all kinds of trials, and perhaps especially persecution. But the hardships that lay before them in the path of following Jesus are not knocking them off of that course. This is a persevering church, and for that Christ commends them. 
The next item in verse 2 is that the Ephesian church could not bear with, they could not tolerate evildoers. They would not allow overt, unrepentant sin to remain in the church. Those who prove to be committed to pursuing a life of sin either would not be admitted into the membership or fellowship of the church, or, if they were already there, would be put out of the membership and fellowship of the church. This church does not tolerate unrepentant, overt sin in its midst. This is a pure church, at least in some sense. And for that, Christ commends them. The fourth and final point of commendation in verse 2 shows us that not only are they taking sin seriously in their midst, they're taking their doctrine seriously. They tested those who came calling themselves apostles. They carefully examined the teaching of these men, and they determined rightly these were false apostles, false teachers who were teaching false things contrary to the gospel, contrary to what the true apostles taught. This is a solidly Orthodox church, a church committed to sound doctrine. And for that, Christ commends them. And the Lord is not done commending this church. Even after all of that, in verse 3, Jesus offers more words of approval. Look at verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. The Lord brings up once again the Ephesian church's patient endurance or steadfastness to again emphasize His approval for this matter. This obviously is an especially important point of commendation. This is a particularly praiseworthy work according to Jesus. John has already told the churches in chapter 1 that being a part of the kingdom of Jesus necessarily also means being a part of the tribulation and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Chapter 9 through 11, chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. So how instructive that is for us. What does it mean to follow Jesus in this world? Well, one thing it means is patient endurance. Continuing to be a faithful witness in the world, even in the face of opposition from the world perhaps, until the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He reigns forever. Did you know that patient endurance is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian? How much is your walk with Christ marked by patient endurance? When Paul planted the church in Ephesus in Acts 19, there was a ton of opposition. Uh, Ephesus was a major center for the worship of the pagan goddess Artemis. And Ephesus became majorly devoted to the worship of the Roman emperor. And so at the time that the book of Revelation is written, the Christians in Ephesus almost assuredly are still suffering uh, social ostracism at best and likely even physical violence as well for their faith. But as Christ says in verse 3, they're bearing up under the weight of that suffering for the sake of Christ's name and they are not growing weary in doing so. This is amazing. They bear trials and tribulations, but they do not bear with false teaching and immorality in the church. They labor for the kingdom, but they are not growing weary. This is a hardworking, persevering, false doctrine, refuting patiently enduring, bearing up, and not growing weary church. And you may be thinking, I'd love to be a part of a church like this. And I hope that you're not. 
because there's a really big problem here. And it's a problem that's so big, it actually outweighs all by itself all of the other points of commendation combined. Look at verse 4. Jesus follows his lengthy words of commendation with a short word of correction and rebuke. Verse 4, I have this against you. Can you imagine Jesus addressing you or your church with words like that? I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have left your first love. And no one in Ephesus could say, Lord, what, what do you mean left our first love? Don't you see our toil and patient endurance and bearing up, etc.? Jesus has already said, I know those things. I know your toil and all the rest. I know and I still have this against you. You refuse to deny the name of Christ, even though it means suffering for you. But your love for Christ himself and his people has waned, even as you persevere in bearing his name at great cost. Could you, could we, really be working hard for the kingdom and patiently enduring and bearing suffering for Christ's name and fighting for the purity of the church and holding fast to sound doctrine and at the same time not really and truly be loving Christ? Apparently so. How can we hear this? And do anything but pray, Oh God, search me and know my heart. Test my thoughts. See if there be any grievous and loveless way in me and lead me into life everlasting. Now it isn't explained exactly what is meant by the love you had at first. Is this the love of Christ? Is it love for Christ's people, for one another in the church? I think the Apostle John would answer, yes. Have you read the gospel that John wrote? Have you read the letters that John wrote? Loving Christ and loving Christ's people are inseparable. In John 13, 35, John recorded how Jesus told his disciples that if you love one another... You show the world, like a lampstand, that you are my disciple. So whenever the love that the members of a church have for one another is waning, that church is beginning to no longer function as a lampstand of Christ to the world. We've read about the love of the Ephesian church in an earlier part of the Bible, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he gave thanks to God for them in chapter 1 because he had heard of the love they had for Christ and Christ's people. And in chapter 3, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be rooted and grounded in love. And then at the very end of the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul said, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And now... John, the apostle who wrote so much about love in his inspired epistles, sends a message from Christ to that same church, perhaps his own recent home church, telling them they have left the love they had at first. John's book of Revelation was probably written about 30 years after Paul's letter to this church. And so here, decades after, the church is first planted and tended to by the Apostle Paul and his protege Timothy. This church was still holding fast to the doctrine that they were taught. They were still fervent guardians of the Lord's truth, like Paul had told them to be. But they were no longer fervent lovers of the Lord himself. 
Although they were persevering in many things, they were no longer doing them ultimately in love with a warm affection for Christ and Christ's people. As I describe the Ephesian church, might I also be describing you? Do you love Jesus? Do you love His people? Not just the idea of His people, abstractly speaking. I mean, do you actually love the people that are in your actual church? Do you love Jesus like you once did? If I had to guess, I would suppose there are many people in this room that are very uncomfortable right now as they consider those questions. And I'm one of them. What should you do? After Jesus told the church that they abandoned their first love, he told them what they should do. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Christ doesn't merely rebuke his church. Mercifully, he tells them what they should do about it. You praise, you should praise God that God not only searches our hearts and tests our thoughts, but he also leads us into life everlasting. And Christ gives three commands to the church who has left their first love. Repent. Excuse me, that's the second one. Remember, repent, and do the things you used to do. So those who have left their first love, first of all, need to call the mind they, the love they had at first. Remember from where you have fallen. Jesus commands you. Remember how you loved at first. The Lord who loved you first. And recall the sweetness of fellowship with Christ you've had in the past. Remember the joy of serving Him and walking with Him, even in difficulty, in devotion to Him. Remember how you long to please Him and know Him. Remember how you joyfully gave of yourself to Christ's people. Do you remember? Remembering your first love will show you vividly, by contrast, your current sin. And so then the second command becomes appropriate. Repent. So if you're thinking, it doesn't seem like I love Christ like I used to, you are not in a hopeless situation as if to say, oh, I wish things could be different, but all I can do is just sit here and wait and hope that I end up some way, somehow, loving Christ like I used to. That's not the case. If you've left your first love, you're not called to sit and wish things could be different. You're called to do something about it, which is repent. You are commanded by Jesus to repent. If you have seen your sin, grieve toward God over this sin. Or grieve over your lack of grief over your sin. At least ask God to help you to see and grieve over your sin. Confess your sin honestly to God. Ask Him for forgiveness of your lovelessness. Purpose in your heart to turn from that and endeavor to pursue love of Christ anew. Ask for help to do this. And as you bring this sin before God, and as you ask Him for forgiving grace and transforming grace, believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe that His work truly did buy for you forgiving and transforming grace. It's yours because of what Jesus did. As you move toward God in repentance, if you have abandoned your love for Christ, then you must remember Christ as He is presented in chapter 1 of this letter. Verse 5, 
Christ is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, even the sin of not loving Him like we should. And to believe the good news about Christ as you repent of your sin against Christ is the beginning of a growing love for Christ because it is the one who has forgiven much that loves much. Now, some of you cannot do the first command that Jesus gave. Remember. Some of you have not abandoned the love you had at first because you have never truly loved Christ. And if that's you, you still can and do this second command. Repent. Confess your sin to God and turn from it. Change your mind about the direction you're going. That God, I don't want to continue in my loveless ways toward Christ. I recognize that as evil. I hate it. Forgive me. Change me. And then believe that you truly can be forgiven and changed because of what Jesus did. It's a free gift. The third command in this verse, after telling the church to repent of leaving the love they had at first, Christ then tells the church to return to the works that they worked at first. And this is an interesting command because, as we've seen, the church in Ephesus is still doing many works. Christ recognized their labor, their toil already. But apparently, in some sense, they aren't doing the works they did at first. Perhaps there are some types of works they're no longer doing that they once did when their love for Christ and the church was strong. Or perhaps the Ephesians are still doing the activities they did at first, but they are not counted by Christ as the works they did at first because they're not doing them motivated by love. Just a cold perseverance in church life, in ministry and service, in, in a mechanical manner. With this command, the Lord calls the Ephesian church to action. Do. Okay, the Ephesian church should not hear this and think, oh, uh, we've lost that loving feeling and we need to hope that it comes back. No, they're called to do things. They're not called to feel the feelings they felt before. They're called to work the works they worked before. Listen to John Stott's wise counsel. There is no waiting. There is no suggestion that having fallen out of love with Christ, they must delay until they have fallen in love with Him again. Having abandoned their first love, they must go back to it. And by God's grace, it is in their power to do so. They have fallen from the heights of love. Let them take them by storm again. In the second half of verse 5, the Lord warns the church in Ephesus what will happen if they refuse to repent. Look at verse 5 again. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Wow. Well, what does that mean? I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. What place? The place among the other churches where Jesus walks in their midst. If they do not repent, Christ will not be among them in the way that He promised to be when two or three gather in His name as a local church, in the way that He is with all true churches. So this warning that their lampstand will be removed does not mean simply that this group of Christians will no longer be considered a healthy church. This gathering of people, if they do not repent, will no longer be considered a church. Unhealthy churches may still be true churches. 
where Christians assemble in the name of Jesus and Christ is present with them as their God and acknowledges them as His people. But this is not a healthy versus unhealthy church matter. This is a true church versus not actually a church matter. The church in Ephesus, if they continue on the path they're on without repenting, will become not a church from the perspective of heaven. They may continue to call itself a church, may continue to meet in church-like ways, may have a sign somewhere that says church, but they will no longer be counted as a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will no longer be a light for Christ in the world that He recognizes as rightly representing Him. They will no longer be a group of people that Christ recognizes as gathering in His name. This is the significance of the threat of removing their lampstand. And there are many churches all over the world that stopped existing as churches a long time ago. Christ has removed their lampstand. Dr. Schreiner says, removing the lampstand means the church will lose its status as a Christian church. The light of Christ will no longer shine. The message of the gospel will no longer resound from a church that has lost its first love. It will harden into a parody of a Christian church. For a church without love is ultimately a church without the gospel. Now, how important is this for us to understand? For Christ to remove the lampstand, for a church to become not a true church, it's not only possible for churches that give up the gospel and let go of sound doctrine. Ephesus is a doctrinal church. It's not only possible just for churches that wink and wave their hand at sin. Ephesus couldn't bear with evildoers. This isn't only possible for churches that have a consumeristic mindset. Ephesus is a hardworking church. This isn't only possible for churches that compromise with the culture to avoid persecution and opposition. Ephesus is bearing up for Christ's name's sake taking a stand against the world. But this is also possible, in addition to those things. It's also possible for churches that work hard and care very much about sound doctrine if their commitment to doctrine and purity doesn't come out of a glowing center of love for Jesus. No love, no lampstand. Where there is no love, there is no church. Is this too harsh a judgment? Did Jesus teach His people that loving God is the first and greatest commandment? If a church labors and patiently endures and casts out unrepentant sinners and false teachers but has not love, they are nothing. We commonly understand and rightly understand that a so-called church is not a true church if the gospel is not rightly preached there. But consider that Paul pronounces the same curse upon those who do not love Jesus as he does upon those who preach a false gospel. Galatians 1 Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. As for churches who leave the gospel, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, Let him be accursed. So we can perhaps see a connection here, though. A church may claim to believe the gospel and fight to protect the gospel, but if there is not love in their hearts for Christ and for Christ's people, then whatever the gospel is to those people, it is not the true trust of their hearts. 
Because to embrace by faith the one who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood always, always results in coming to love this one and to persist in loving him. Not perfectly. Sometimes that love may diminish, but it will persist ultimately. Christians don't love Christ perfectly but Christians do repent. And along those lines, consider the mercy of Christ here. Right, The church in Ephesus is not just in danger of leaving their first love. They've already left. That train has left the station. And this is what Jesus said, isn't it, in verse 4? You have abandoned the love you have at first, and yet Christ has not yet removed their lampstand. If the church will not repent of abandoning the love they had at first and the works they did at first, then he will remove their lampstand. Christ does not remove the lampstands of churches whose first love wanes. Christ mercifully invites Christians to repent of losing their first loves. And Christ removes the lampstands of churches who, having left their first love, Refuse to repent of that. And we have some historical evidence that suggests that Christ granted repentance to the church in Ephesus, and perhaps in response to and even by means of this call to repentance in the book of Revelation. The early church father Ignatius wrote a letter to the Ephesian Christians. It's probably only 10 to 20 years after the book of Revelation was written. And Ignatius begins his letter to the church in Ephesus by commending them for their love of Christ. Back to our text this morning. After sending forth the sobering word of correction, the Lord Jesus, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, turns to commend the church in Ephesus once again. Look at verse 6. We find another word of commendation. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're not told exactly what the works of the Nicolaitans were, but the same group is mentioned again later in chapter 2, down in the letter to the church in Pergamum. In verse 15, Christ offers a word of correction involving these same people. Look at verse 15, you So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But even here in verse 15, we're not told what the works or teachings of this group were. But it seems likely that uh, this was a false pseudo-Christian teaching that encouraged or at least allowed people to pursue a life of sin and still claim to follow and belong to Christ. Christ hated their works. Do you feel the force of that? And so did the Ephesian church. And Christ finds this praiseworthy. He tells them so. You know, given the pattern of all seven letters in Revelation, it's pretty unusual for Christ to offer His word of correction and then return to commend them once again. But... Christ placing a second word of commendation after His word of correction is helpful for us in that we see that Christ's call to love does not mean evil deeds or teachings are ever tolerated. True Christian love hates. True Christian love hates evil doctrine and evil practices. Romans 12.9, a command to Christians, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Christ is described in Hebrews 1 as the one that loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So Jesus' call to put on love above all things does not mean, as so many suppose today, that we should embrace or become tolerant of all teachings and lifestyles. Jesus is not telling the church in Ephesus to stop 
their hatred and intolerance of evil and error and put on love instead. Jesus wants them to continue doing those things, but not to be confused into thinking that they love Jesus well simply because they have disdain for what is wrong. That is not the case. I'm very concerned that there are some people in circles like ours, churches like ours, who will have a false confidence that they are right with God because they know how to identify false teaching and overt sin and even feel a kind of abhorrence about those things. They think, I hate false gospels and heresies and sinful lifestyles like Jesus does, like the Word says, so I guess I must love Jesus too. Not necessarily. I wonder if there might be anyone in this room who hates false doctrine rightly, but doesn't truly love Jesus. On the other hand, I wonder if there might be anyone in this room who loves Jesus, but does not hate false doctrine and ungodliness. That's also a problem. Not as great of a problem, but a problem. Finally, in verse 7, Jesus gives a word of promise to close His message to the church in Ephesus. Look at verse 7 now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Each of the seven letters ends with a promise like this, for the one who conquers, or the one who overcomes. And in context, the overcomer or the conqueror refers to the one who heeds the message of the letters, who repents of sin and continues enduring in faith in Christ. So the overcomer or the conqueror is the one who hears the voice of Jesus in these letters and follows Him. This promise for the conqueror is intended to give the church in Ephesus hope in the midst of their suffering for Christ's name and, importantly, to give them motivation to repent and to continue patiently enduring. What is the truth that should help drive the Ephesians to repent of their lovelessness? Well, to the one who does God will grant, give freely. He will grant to him to eat of the tree of life. The mention of the tree of life, of course, takes us back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. After God made man, Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And even the word garden here um, translates into Greek with the word paradise. Paradise is is a word taken from another language that just means park or, or pleasure garden. And it's the same word we find here in Revelation 2. The tree of life, promised to the overcomer, is in the paradise or garden of God. So God walked with man in the garden of Eden. There was no sin or death or sorrow, only unbroken fellowship with God and enjoyment of the things God had made. And perhaps Jesus, at the beginning of this letter, is said to be walking in the midst of the lampstands and not just standing in the midst of the lampstands like He is seen doing in John's vision in chapter 1 because it's an allusion to how God walked with man in His paradise. Like man enjoyed fellowship with His Maker in His presence in the Garden of Eden, so too churches have fellowship now with our Maker and Savior, with Jesus and with God the Father of our Lord Jesus. 
And as the Lord walked in the midst of the garden with Adam, so Christ walks in the midst of the churches with us. When Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out of the garden, out of the paradise of God, and man was exiled from Eden in order to bar sinful man access to the tree of life. At the end of Genesis 3, the Lord God said, Now, lest man reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, But now for the one who repents and trusts in Jesus, God is no longer guarding the tree of life from us. He is granting it to us to take and eat and live forever. In the paradise of God, in the fullness of His presence, It's as if, because of the sin-bearing work of Christ, it's as if God has called the cherubim with the flaming sword that turns every way to stand down and step aside. His services aren't needed anymore as Christ's people approach the tree of life and inherit eternal life. The end of Revelation describes the final home of Christians, and again makes use of the tree of life imagery. In Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, also an allusion to the Garden of Eden, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. This is a new and better Eden. Yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. So Christ walks in the midst of his people now, as we patiently endure on earth, but we also eagerly anticipate and are promised here an even greater experience of fellowship with Him, of walking with Him in the paradise of God. One of the last verses of Revelation says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Let's pray. God, we bless your name because you have blessed us freely. You have blessed us to wash our robes. And you have given us the right to the tree of life to take and eat and live forever. God, I pray that you would help us to repent where we need to in response of this word and to 